The Start On Demand. On demand. Winter delivers a fierce blast of its wrath to kick off the first real week back to work after the holidays. The kicker for the Chicago Bears, Cody Parkey, gets a fierce blast of hatred after missing a game-winning kick against the Eagles. Blue Bomber color commentator Doug Brown has some thoughts on that. Important research on why babies sometimes turn blue when they're born continues to progress. Winnipeg Jets are doing their part to help Manitoba's youth with mental wellness. And greetings to all who are celebrating Orthodox Christmas. I'm Brett McGarry, alongside Greg Mackling and Loren McNabb. We are Mackling, McGarry and McNabb, and this is the Monday podcast for The Start. Let's have a chat here about snow days and I know that uh, for for kids waiting, I remember turning on the radio Mm -hmm. and just waiting and hoping that it would be the snow day. I don't recall ever having one. I don't think I ever had a snow day. If I did, maybe there was one in 1985. I seem to recall a snow in November of 1985. Yeah, I think that was 86, not to correct you. Yes, uh, but you know, no, Greg, yes to correct me. <laughs> <laughs> only because, only because. And it was 86. Only because uh, that was the only snow day in 12 years that I remember. They sent us home early on the Thursday based on the snow coming Thursday. Well, they shut down afternoon. the city for that one. Did they oh, not? The that city was, like, was shut down yeah. for almost four days. That was a full blizzard, and yeah. they actually told people not to come to work. Yeah. Don't get out on, like, the buses aren't running, like, stay home. And we still talk about that because I think we just passed the, the 30th anniversary of that one, right? Well, so we, that was we, a big we deal. Really, we really lucked out because of the timing of that one, right? It wasn't in the middle of the week. Mm-hmm. It was over a weekend and there was there was also a quote-unquote holiday or a day when people don't work with Remembrance Day. So I, if memory serves me, we went home early on the Thursday, we're off the Friday and then didn't go back to school. I think it was till the Tuesday. So that gave the city enough time to clean up. But I've mentioned this before. I know on our afternoon show, Brett, we we talked a lot and extensively about the idea of snow emergencies. And do we just have too much gumption when it comes to... And machismo when it comes to getting to work in Manitoba. Are we just kind of dumb about this? I think so. I I think about today, like, so I made all these plans yesterday. said to the kids, you might have a snow day tomorrow. Then we made plans, you know, my kids go to school in a different community, uh, to a French immersion school, so their daycare is in a different town. And I was like, but if there's a snow day, let's take them to the friends. Why would we put our kids out on the highway when the buses aren't running. If the buses aren't running, they shouldn't be on the road. But I'm going out on the road, and my husband's going to go to work and all those kinds of things. And I probably, once a winter, easily have a day where I think I could die this morning. And I'm not exaggerating. Like, I'm scared once I get out. Once you get out into it and you're on the road and you're caught in that moment where you're like, well, I can't turn around. I can't come to a stop because I could get rear-ended. I got to keep on driving. And you get to work and you kind of go, whew, that was crazy. And you forget all about it and you go on. And yet, you know, everybody else, you know, we're keeping our kids safe. But then we hop in our cars and go to work. We had the conversation last week about how adequate... Uh, how adequately or inadequately sidewalks have been plowed so far. And I saw something on Twitter over the weekend. That conversation continued. And how would folks that drive vehicles like it if we plowed two of three lanes? 
on the major thoroughfares, kept one as a lane for holding snow Mm -hmm. so that you could prioritize transit on days like today. And sidewalks, right? And the whole question, right? We heard the criticisms of, well, you've got to have good judgment and your people in wheelchair, you can't expect that you're going to go out and everything's going to be clear that day. Well, every driver expects every single snowfall by 10 a.m. to not be, you know, to be able to have a clear drive. And now now we're going to have a priority system for who you are and where what where where your station is in life. And we're going to put 200,000 cars on the road in Winnipeg today and everyone's going to be expecting that they can get to work in a reasonable amount of time. Is that a reasonable expectation? I I don't know. And it was tough looking at the radar last night as well because when I checked it yesterday afternoon Jeff Braun and I were here uh, we had a chat with Roy Green on the Roy Green Show uh, as the couch potatoes yesterday, and we were actually putting together our first draft for our script for Star Wars versus Star Trek for the Winnipeg Symphony Orchestra. But we looked, at, we had a peek at the radar, and and I know you can't look at the projected path, the possible path of the radar because it's bound to change. But it looked like it was going to be well clear of the city by midnight. But it was still snowing when I woke up at 3 a.m. So any clearing effort that they really they couldn't really put the the plows down until that snow was done, right? And that's basically happening right before happened right before the morning rush began. So that's got to be tough. So yeah, it's going to be a messy drive uh, into the city. Should also point out as well, we got another cancellation note here on buses for a school division. This is the DSFM division. Buses not running for 15 schools in the DSFM, and we have that list up at cjob.com where you can get all the li- all of the various schools that are affected, all of the daycares that are affected. Log on to cjob.com. And, of course, you can share with us whatever you're seeing out there on the road, where provided, of course, it's safe for you to do so. Text us at 204-780-6868. Tim saying transit bus spun out and stuck Pan it between Reinders and Talbot. Hmm. That was six minutes ago. That may be different now. Imagine the problems that's going to cause. I know it's not really a major thoroughfare, but that's going to cause huge problems for hundreds of people. Now, here's if if you declared a snow day for kids and and snow day for adults on days like today, though, you could end up with fifteen of those in some seasons. Like I don't know where where your line would be. Like. Because I just call, I would be here at least ten times. Well, yeah, like, you gotta drive in, guys. Just, it's not happening this morning. Then Every I... time I, it snows, I wonder is McNabb gonna make it to work today? Because <laughs> you gotta come in from out of town. Eight million, ten million, twenty-five million. I don't know how much Cody Parking's getting paid, but that little from South Florida can't make a god tick. For his f-ing life. I mean, how much f-ing money we gotta pay this? F-ing how much f-ing opportunity do you f-ing need? How many f-ing missed kicks is Cody Parkey gonna f-ing hit this year? Eleven. Eleven. That's how many. Eleven. F-ing you, Cody. F-ing you. He has anger issues. Come on. Like, take it easy. I'm as passionate a sports fan as they come, but that is way, way over the line. I cringe listening to that. Just too many, too many BB, too many bleeps. Like, I was uncomfortable. Yeah, that was a 40-second clip and uh, 18 bleeps in there. It required some surgery this morning. Yeah. Make that suitable. Who was that? That's, That's Carl from Barstool Sports losing his mind after the Chicago Bears game last night. Furious at a missed field goal that 
put a crushing end to the Bears' playoff run. It was an incredible game last night, back and forth. The defending Super Bowl champion, Philadelphia Eagles, uh, prevailing. They had an outstanding uh, last five-minute drive for the go-ahead touchdown. And the fact that the Bears even had an opportunity to try and win the game was uh, most incredible. Uh, the reaction uh, from Carl, though mild compared to what other fans were saying on Twitter last night, some threatening to kill and or dismember Cody Parkey. Wow. So here's what happened with just 10 seconds left in the Bears game against the Philadelphia Eagles. The Bears were trailing by just one point. Parkey was called in to make a 43-yard field goal. And it kind of gets interesting here because he had made his first attempt, but just before the ball was snapped, the Eagles called a timeout. So Parkey had to make the same kick again. Here it is and what he, how he reacted. I struck a good ball there, and unfortunately, I mean, I can't make this up. I hit the post, what, six times this year, and I hit it twice on that one. I mean, you can't make this up. I mean, I feel terrible, but the team down, um, that's on me. So I have to own it. I have to be a man, and, you know, it's unfortunately, uh, unfortunately, that's the way it went today. Your teammates quickly consoled you. I mean, does that help in that situation? Are you just numb? Or? Of course. I mean, that's the worst, one of the worst feelings in the world to, to let your team down. 11th time Parkey's missed a field goal or a point after touchdown. And the sixth time he's hit the uprights. And in fact, on that field goal, Brett Loren, it hit the upright and then hit the crossbar. And you would think. Go the other way. It would at least go in between the uprights off the hit upright at least once or twice of those six times. No, no such luck. Yeah, They're I, calling it a doink. A doink. And the, the the final score in that football game once again was Philadelphia 16, Chicago 15. And one of the things that I saw on Twitter this morning was somebody reacted and saying, good news for Cody Parkey. It's not like Chicago fans are unreasonable towards people <laughs> who have negative effects on playoff games. And then there's a picture of Steve Bartman. Right. Mm-hmm. Who's Steve Bartman, Greg? Steve Bartman is the gentleman who got in the way of Moises Alou's foul ball back in the World Series. I want to or not the World Series, uh, from in the uh, National League Championship Series mm-hmm. 2004, they I want to say. They didn't make it to the World Series, and right? They didn't. Uh, they were winning the game at that point in time, and it just all fell apart for the Cubs after that. So, yeah, the he had to be escorted by police. There's an incredible documentary about the entire game and, and what Steve Bartman went through uh, that, that any sports fan needs to see in terms of unreasonableness. But, yeah, Chicago fans, unfortunately, a little bit famous for this. What do you mind just texting me now, Greg, uh, saying that he saw a zoom-in replay last night that showed the kick was tipped mm-hmm. ever so slightly. That's true. So that's tough for, for Parky. But yeah, for any any angry sports fan, if you think you're angrier or more upset than Cody Parkey is right now, that's something that's going to haunt him for the rest of his life. Yeah. Without question. I'll never forget after the Bombers played in 2000 in Montreal. 2001, and, and Grey Cup. And I think Cup. Troy Westwood had a couple missed, f- missed field goals. Including one that went straight off the upright where the, the Bombers right. didn't even get a rouge and, out of and it. And I remember meeting them at the airport to uh, get their reaction after they came in. And I can still see Westwood's eyes like he just, he hadn't slept. He could he could barely speak. You could tell like the nausea that was rolling in his stomach because he had probably replayed that kick 
a million times over in his head and maybe still does, you know, a little bit. You, you, people can move on and everyone does well with their life and goes on. But oh, you feel they feel sick. You don't need to tell them they should feel sick. And and just so we don't dump all over American sports fans and Chicago sports fans. I remember this from 2004 when the Saskatchewan Rough Riders lost a playoff game in overtime to the BC Lions. Some unhappy football fans took their anger out on their kicker, Paul McCallum. Not only did they um, threaten Paul McCallum, they also dumped manure on his front yard. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Wow. So, you know, passionate sports fans live everywhere. Well, that's a crime. Now you're talking about crime, right? Correct. And we talked about this last week, too, about the idea that hours after Team Canada was knocked out of the... World Juniors, the captain, is it Maxime Comtois? Am I saying that right? You he, are. He had to turn off comments on his Instagram page because he was being harassed. He also got death threats. What is he, an 18-year-old, 19-year-old kid? Yes. And some of the words were so vile that he actually put a, a statement via his agent saying, like, that it needs to be a learning moment for all the youth of Canada, that cyberbullying is a real problem, and like all bullies, we need to stand up to them and call them out for what they are. And that move then prompted Hockey Canada head Tom Rennie to call for action, actually speaking with CKNW Vancouver reporter Janet Brown over the weekend. And in essence, you know, what it could be construed as to Janet is bullying. And, um, you know, with that being said, I think that uh, those that choose to, um, you know, lack the courage to identify themselves and, and, and identify with, you know, a situation that they may or may not disagree with um, suggests an awful lot about the author of such comments. And that's why we need to really, uh, two things, understand that in my mind this is bullying and understand, too, that in some way, shape or form this has to be policed. And how would it be policed in some way by, by p- people who are following these people or what are you suggesting? You know what, I wish I had the answer to that, and that might be the, the great debate, uh, you know, at the end of the day. How do we protect uh, our citizenship in general from this type of, uh, of abuse and, and, in many cases, um, you know, bullying, if you will, uh, or harassment, however you want to depict this? Um, you know, at the end of the day, that is, I think, something that, uh, you know, must come from, a, from some type of legislation, um, you know, federally, provincially, municipally, uh, for that matter. But at the end of the day, we need to protect our citizenship um, from those that don't have the courage to deal with things straight up and identify themselves. Yeah, that's, uh, this is frustrating when an 18-year-old man representing his country gets death threats. I mean, it's, it's just a game. I know yeah. it's easy to say it's just a game if you're heavily invested in it. It, it means a lot more, but how, it's just a How game. invested can you be in the World Junior Championships? Any more invested than the players, the coaches, and the parents of these players. Sorry, your fandom does not supersede any of those people on any level. Sorry, guys. And I even think about what I say in front of my kids, like if you're watching the game and you're slowly losing your mind, you don't want to be the one saying like, what an idiot, or I can't believe you missed that because I don't want my kids thinking it's okay to just call someone an idiot when they miss a shot. Like, come on. Before we check traffic (laughs) and weather, we do want to play the Spanish call of the missed Cody Parkey kick. Does it sound better? It does sound better. Have a (laughs) listen to this. The Cody Parkey. 43 yardas. El snap. Le mete el pie. Distancia, dirección. Le dio el poste. No, falló. Oh. No, señor. No, señor. No, señor. No, señor. No, señor. No, señor. Los hijos se van con la victoria. Ay, papá. No, señor. No, señor. Chicago, Chicago. Nos vamos para New Orleans. 
Philadelphia fantastic. No, señor. Was that last part where he threw in the New Orleans, Greg? Is that? Uh, well, I guess they were supposed to go. They would have might might have gone to New Orleans had they won. I think it's the Eagles going to New Orleans now. So. Okay. And then of course the, the Chicago, Chicago. In any language, that's a missed field goal. That's what that is. It sounded so much <laughs> and better. That's a in Bears Spanish. loss. I think I'm going to start watching all sports in Spanish now if I can. Couldn't be better. I think there are three NHL teams that have Spanish uh, commentary, and uh, it's very entertaining to watch. So why are we talking? What was that for? That was the Chicago Bears, Philadelphia Eagles. In the NFC, one of the two uh, wild card games that took place this weekend last night, the best of the four games over the weekend in the Chicago Bears. That was the last play of the game. Cody Parkey, their uh, field goal kicker, had made three straight field goals to that point, uh, but missed the most important one that would have put them into the next round of the playoffs. Doug Brown. Color analyst on Blue Bomber broadcast and also my partner on the Blue Bomber podcast joins us now. And Doug, you don't know anything about kickers ruining a season for you, do you? No, senor. <laughs> not. <laughs> you know, it's uh, it's quite the spectacle, isn't it? When you watch an entire football game like that and you you realize what it takes, what these guys have to do to gain a yard or to stop someone from gaining a yard. They're out there, they're putting it all, all on the line and then out trots the kicker at the end of the game and everything's on his shoulder. It's just, it's the most, it's almost ironic is what it is because it's such a brutal, uh, toll exacting game. There's so much punishment and consequence for what happens in professional football. And then it all comes down to this guy that looks like he has absolutely no business being there in any way, shape, or form. Like he just came off of, uh, you know, he just got off of recess at high school, and now the game is on his hands. And obviously the, the scenario that was really tough was he made the first one, and then uh, obviously uh, the, the timeout that was called by the Philadelphia Eagles required him to go and do it again. And uh, as we all know, that did not happen. The question I have for you guys, though, was it deflected? There is some um, uh, thought or speculation out there that, that that football was touched or tipped or slightly redirected by somebody on the line of scrimmage. I think so, one of the Eagles know. players came out and said that he had t- tipped it or touched it or, or yeah. whatever. We were talking, Doug, you know, about the idea that like no one's going to be harder on himself today than the kicker. And so when you're in the locker room in that moment afterwards, do you even make eye contact with that person? I mean, do you go up and say it's okay? Are you really feeling as his teammate that it is okay? Or are you also kind of ticked off? Yeah, you know, it's really tough. It it really depends on your your relationship with that guy. You know, a, a lot of times, like you say, they're not really in that nucleus of the football team a lot of times because they're not participating in all this stuff. They have their moments in practice. They're kind of off to the side. They're kind of doing different stuff. Uh, It's really an individual thing. There'll be guys on the team that, you know, will go right up to them. There'll be other guys that never want to talk to them again. And it's, uh, it's just, it's a really, really tough situation. You know, in football, there's that that line that just do your job right and when it comes to kicking footballs unfortunately that is their pass or fail grade there is no almost or or medium or or, uh you know good enough when it comes to kicking you either you either make it you either succeed or you fail and unfortunately in this 
uh, scenario and situation on uh, attempt number two. Wow. Uh, a couple, you know, it's, that's really hard to do, by the way. We used to play in, in warm-ups before games. We would just try and throw footballs and, and try and hit, have them hit the crossbar, have, have it hit the upright and the crossbar at the same time in the game-winning attempt. I mean, that is failing in spectacular fashion. But you, you can't help for feel, the, but feel for the guy, but it's, it's the absurdity of the game where it all comes down uh, to a play by a guy that's really not a football player and it's all put on his shoulders. So it's it's uh, it's quite the spectacle for sure. I love how you hammer on that fact that he's not really a football player. And so we get how you feel about it. But, Doug, does he get any credit for even putting the Bears in the position that they were in in the first place? Because let's face it, uh, the Bears weren't exactly lighting it up offensively and, and putting the ball in the end zone. He was a majority of their scoring yesterday. Yeah, I mean... I, I didn't really. Uh, I, I don't notice those things. That, <laughs> <laughs> that doesn't. So what you're trying to say is it doesn't matter. Just do your job well, on that play. It's uh, you know he's he's got one response. It's funny though because we saw in the in the game the day before as well. Sebastian Janikowski went down, and that might have cost the Seattle Seahawks. You know, and, and to me, the hardest part about digesting and just accepting all this is. You understand what what the players on the football field how how they feel at this time of the year, the injuries they're playing through, what they have to overcome, and just to get themselves out there lined up on the football field, and then and then you see a guy like Sebastian Janikowski, you know, on a field goal attempt, he's done now, and that potentially you know was the reason why the Seattle Seahawks lost that football game. You know, the onside kick, uh, they had to change their offensive strategy going forward. So it's interesting. It's just there's two situations on the weekend where where kickers, you know, really let their teams down. And uh, unfortunately, when that is the extent, when it says kicker and it says job description underneath it, there's one thing it says: you got to hit those right. And when you don't, what do you say? And we got to do our job and get out on time. We're already late, Doug Brown. We got to go. Thank you very much, sir. Mackling, who are we bringing in now? Well, just recently, Dr. Shamala Dakshimanmurti was awarded a $40,000 grant toward her research on why babies turn blue at birth and how to solve that problem. Her research is getting her close to a cure. And guess what? All of this is happening in Manitoba. And finally they get him out. And he tries to take a breath. And he stays blue. And he died three days later of pulmonary hypertension. It's blue baby. Why am I telling you this story? The first baby was me. The second baby was my cousin. Pulmonary hypertension, blue babies, is that commonplace and that devastating that you'll find this happening in everybody's family. It has an incidence of maybe six per thousand, that's maybe 30 babies in Manitoba per year. It's 10% of our ICU admissions, but when it's your baby, it's the universe. The money came from a program called Innovators. We'll find out more about that in just a moment. Joining us now, Dr. Shamla Dakshinamurti to share her personal story that has driven her research. Good morning, doctor. How are you this morning? 
I'm very well. Thank you for having me. Well, thank you so much. And I would love to have played that entire clip that I had access to, but I thought, you know what? You're going to be joining us on the air. Why don't you tell us uh, that personal story that we just played the end of uh, to put into context why this research is so important for you? Well, I'd been doing this research actually for about 15 years when I'd gone back to the old country to visit family. And I was talking about this work that I do and how excited I am about the research. And then I looked at my aunt's face and I saw the expression on her face and I asked her, what did I just say? And then she told me that she had had a baby and lost that baby at three days of age to pulmonary hypertension. Pulmonary hypertension is uh, colloquially known as blue babies. We always think when a baby is born, they take a breath, they cry, they turn pink, and this is what everybody's holding the breath in the room and waiting for. But if you don't get enough oxygen during a difficult delivery, then that whole process of taking a breath and turning pink just doesn't happen. And I'd been studying this problem for years when I discovered, actually, I have a personal stake here. I, I had a, a cousin that died of pulmonary hypertension right after birth. And knowing that, it makes the research more urgent and it makes it more real. But it doesn't make it any bit more important because whether it happened to my family or anybody's family, this is the most devastating thing that can happen. I think there's also that misconception, perhaps, that once the baby does take that breath in those first few moments, that everything is going to be okay. But you're talking about, in the case of your cousin, a couple days later. And so it, it can have lingering effects that need to be watched for and understood. Well, it's not an immediate thing. They, this, the babies who can't get enough oxygen are struggling and the doctors are struggling to keep them alive. And... You see, un until you're born, you don't need blood to go to your lungs. Mom's doing the breathing for you. But the minute you're born, the lungs have to work. Blood has to go there to pick up oxygen from the air. In order for that to happen, there's a tremendous change in the shape and the width of those blood vessels. It's like the whole plumbing has to change so blood can flow into the lung. For that to happen inside the cells... Literally, there's a cascade of one molecule triggers another molecule triggers another molecule in order for the blood vessels to dilate. When you don't get enough oxygen, that cascade goes offline, so the blood vessels don't dilate, so the blood doesn't go to the lungs, so the baby cannot get oxygen from the air, and they stay blue. We have some tools, even now, to try to help those blood vessels relax and dilate, but not good enough tools. And so that's what my lab, my team are studying. How does this happen and can we make it happen? Can we devise new tools? Because when I'm working in the hospital, I am looking for if, I, if drug number one doesn't work, I need drug number two. And if that one doesn't work, I need drug number three. And time is limited because if you don't get these blood vessels dilated, if you don't get the baby's blood flowing into the lungs, that baby has maybe a week to live at max. You mentioned your team is working hard on this. Are you close to a cure for this condition? Well, you can never say that in science, but I will say that we now have a really clear understanding of why this happens. 
We know there's one molecule in the lung that literally gets bent out of shape when you don't have enough oxygen. And that molecule doesn't work. That molecule is the gatekeeper to allow blood vessels to relax and dilate. So we're working on right now trying to design a drug to get that molecule kick-started so that we can relax lung blood vessels. If it works, then there's a cure. I won't say that we're there already because if I knew the answer, we wouldn't be doing this research. Dr. Dakshinamurti, I have to ask you uh, very quickly, this was this funding, this latest round of funding was secured through something called Innovators, and you had to do a pitch amongst other researchers who were looking to get funding as well. Just talk about how that worked and how it's worked out for you uh, in about a minute or so, if you could. Well, that's fascinating and fun to do it. it. The Innovators program is very much like the Dragon's Den. Um, the idea is for people who are interested in supporting research in our community that they pool together their donations to the Children's Hospital Foundation. And then the donors, the innovators themselves get to listen to each research team's pitch and pick which one they'd like to put all the money towards. So for the scientists and the clinicians who are competing, it's this opportunity to make research real. And literally, we had people in the lab looking at um, blood vessels, looking through the microscope, looking at a computer model of the molecule we're trying to target and how we're trying to design a drug to fix that molecule. And for the people who are donating to Children's Hospital Foundation, it's an opportunity to see exactly how the money gets put to use and to have a say in how it's get put, it's going to get put to use by picking the project you want to support. Doctor, thank you so much for this. Congratulations on this funding and uh, best of luck as you continue down this path towards this uh, very valuable and critical research. Thank you for your time. Thanks for having me. Dr. Shamala Dakshinamurti was recently awarded $40,000 toward her research on why babies turn blue at birth and how to solve that problem. Right now, we want to tell you about the Alzheimer's Awareness Month campaign, hashtag I Live With Dementia. And to tell us about this, we are joined live in studio by the CEO of the Alzheimer's Society, Manitoba, Wendy Shetler. Wendy, good morning to you. Good morning. Thank you very much for joining us. So, well, thanks for having me. This campaign, I Live With Dementia, tell us uh, what it's about. Well, I think what we really know is that um, there's a lot of stigma that surrounds dementia. Surrounds uh, the person themselves with dementia as well as what it's like to care to be a caregiver. And so really what we're trying to get people is to feel more comfortable sharing their stories. And uh, because we really know that the more stories we hear about how people live and what it's like... Um, the more open others will be to share their stories and recognize that um, there's lots of really good living t- left to do. We, when we think of dementia, we often think of the very end of the illness, which sometimes can be really, really challenging for people. And as a caregiver for my dad, I can tell you that that certainly reflects our story, that the last two years were not really good. Um, but my dad did live well with dementia for a long time. And so we really need to think that about that as the general public. When we think about dementia, if we're looking at somebody who has dementia or caregiver and we're looking at them like, oh my goodness, your life is so terrible and what a burden you carry if you're a caregiver or how horrible it must be to have dementia. 
dementia, then when you're looking at that person that way, you treat the person that way, and then they start feeling that their life is so terrible and what a horrible burden it is. Um, but if we look at people differently and recognize that people have lots to contribute, um, they have lots of joy, lots of fun and wonderful experiences left to live. And if you look at a caregiver, I know that, yeah, caregiving can be really challenging sometimes, but it can, can be amazingly gratifying and and you learn tremendous amounts. And it's amazing the things that you develop um, in yourself that, you know, we think about dementia a little bit differently. And as we do that, people live better. Well, you've done polls. I think you did one last year or the Alzheimer's Society about just how people wouldn't admit that they had it if they were ever diagnosed with de- dementia. And, and how do you how do you get them to say, come out and be, yeah, I have it and I'm living with it and I still go to work or I can still drive or I can still do all these things when you know that there is that attachment to it for the rest of society dealing with it that well, way. Well, and I think it's, the whole idea is then you somebody has to start somewhere, right? So we have to stand up and, and we say, hey, I have dementia or I care for somebody with dementia. And these are all the things that are pretty great in my life. And, you know, when I, it was interesting because my dad had moderate symptoms of dementia when I took the job of the CEO of the Alzheimer's Society. And my dad had been a CEO, his life, most of his adult life as well. And so I went and sat down and talked to him. I want your advice. This is what's going on. This is the kind of change I'm looking at doing in my job. And because this people is, would say you could become identified by the label of being a person living with dementia as opposed to all the other to things. Define you. Well, that's it. And you life. have no, yeah. you know, you can't give advice anymore. You have no insight into anything. You can't contribute. And so, you know, I had sat down and got tremendous amounts of insight with my dad. And at the end of the day, he said, oh, for crying out loud, you do just take that job. You'll be great at it. And so it was really important for both of us to get those messages. And, and so, you know, it's what really I'm here today is to, when you meet somebody with dementia, talk to them. Ask about their stories. Learn more about them. When you talk about, when you find out what a, you know, a caregiver, somebody who's caring for somebody, ask them about what that's like to be a caregiver. Ask them about, you know, the positive things they've learned. And, and give the opportunity for people to be where they are. Because sometimes it's not going to be a happy story. You know, we have to recognize that there's a whole range of experience. But again, two-thirds of people with dementia live in the community. So if you're living in the community, um, you need to live your life in the community. You need to go to your community centers. You need to be part of your family events. You need to have friends who phone you, who come over, who visit, who have dinner parties. All those things that you used to do. Sometimes you have to change how you do them and you have to modify. So if you have a friend or a family member with dementia, learn about it. Find out what that means to a person. Find out how they might change. Find out how you can best support them and talk about it. Talk about it. Let people know. And you will really see that you're not alone. 56% of Manitobans have a close friend or family member with dementia. That's a lot of people. Mm -hmm. So if that many people are, are impacted... Why aren't we talking about it more? And why aren't we also talking again about the good stories, about the good times that you have with the person, both either as a caregiver or as a person with dementia? We've got support groups for people with dementia uh, that we run at the Alzheimer's Society. And I have to tell you, the most laughter I hear in my day is when those groups run in the morning. Um, so it really isn't all doom and gloom. Uh, Mike says, uh, seven eight zero sixty eight sixty eight. I was a caregiver for my father for many years. It was hard, but worth it. Look at it this way. Someday you may need a caregiver yourself. And I'm in a somewhat similar situation with my grandmother, and she started to 
you know, to, to forget my schedule and, and to forget that she'd called me, you know, just an hour before about the exact same thing. And so on the caregiver side, that can be frustrating. How do you manage that? How do you manage your own? Because let's face it, I'm in that sandwich generation based on this right now. I've got my own kids to look after, but my grandma's reaching out for help. How do I deal with that and keep my positivity when... I'll be frank, it can be very frustrating when she calls me 11 times in a day and nine of the 11 calls are about the exact same issue. For sure. So I would say a few things. One, be nice to yourself. So when you're feeling frustrated and you're having a tough day and maybe you don't respond to your grandma quite as you know lovingly and patiently as you like to be, then you know what, it's okay. You'll have lots of other chances. So be kind to yourself, number one. The other thing is make sure that you're getting the support you need. So if you really are doing everything, then you're doing too much. And then it's enlist friends. Again, the more we talk about it, I'm going through this. I could use some help. Would you mind doing X for me so I can focus more on these, these calls that I'm getting with my grandma right now? Um, the other thing is learn about the illness, right? Learn about the illness. And then be in the moment. Sometimes it's really hard when you're with a person with dementia and you're always remembering the things that they would have done before. Well, this isn't my grandma. She's not like this. My grandma would never have done this. My grandma would never have said this. But you know what? This is who your grandma is, right? This is who your grandma is now. And and then appreciate all of those things about her now um, because there's lots of fun things. You know, my, again, my dad as a, as a CEO was an incredibly competent person. And as he changed, he didn't have those same kind of competencies anymore. And at first, it was really hard for me to see the way he was changing. And so I spent a fair amount of time being sad about that. And when I was with him, just really being aware. And I needed to step back a bit to look at who he was now and appreciate that he was funny and he was more loving, actually, than he ever been before. He was always a little bit... um, more strict and wasn't quite as overly affectionate. And he became very kind of mushy and he would tell me how, tell me how proud he was of me. And, and we would sing together and we would be silly together. And, and we just had so many wonderful moments. And so, you know, be kind to yourself. Enjoy your moments. Learn. Get help. Learn, you know, talk to people from the Alzheimer's Society. You know, really learn about the illness. We've got courses and, and workshops going all of the time. Learn about the supports out in the community, and we can help you link to them. It's Alzheimer's Awareness Month. The campaign is hashtag I live with dementia. If you go to alzheimer.mb.ca, you'll see the page. Yes, I live with dementia. Let me help you understand where you can read the stories. And can stories be added to this as well if somebody wants to submit yes, a story? Yes, please do that. That would be fantastic. Okay. Wendy Shetler, CEO of Alzheimer's Society Manitoba, thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you. Greg, do you know any Ukrainians in your life? I know a couple. Yeah? Yeah. I've celebrated Orthodox Christmas in the past. It's it's a neat tradition. Mm-hmm. And, and great uh, food. Oh, well, the food, the Ukrainian food, I don't know if you can beat it in that's, the first place. That's why I just ate the banana that I brought, because uh, my stomach was grumbling, and I knew that after this segment was done, <laughs> that it would be grumbling even more. We want to learn about Ukrainian Christmas, Orthodox Christmas, with Anastasia Yereniak, joining us live on 680 CJOB. Anastasia, good morning to you. Good morning. Could a sausage diet, sir? Yes, exactly yeah, what I was going to say. Right? I think that's what we're saying. <laughs> well, Anastasia, I know you had your Christmas Eve celebration last night, so set the table for us, literally. You had a big crowd, and, and what were you serving? 
Oh, well, we were serving just 12 traditional dishes. However, I think I had 15 because you can't stop at 12. <laughs> so we started out with the um, very important kucha, which is um, made of uh, wheat and poppy seed and honey. And then we went on to borscht, which was um, an exquisite soup that I know that you know about and we're, we were so excited or this year I was very excited to to make borscht from beets that were grown by a really good friend of mine who came from Ukraine and she gave me these um, these beets so it was like super delicious and we went on to um, Holopsi and Varenike. Do you want to know a little bit about those? Yep. Keep, keep talking. Okay. You're painting a beautiful okay. well, picture you know, right now. The, the arts in, in, in Ukrainians' lives are, play a very critical role. And, you know, the music and the caroling is really important to Ukrainians. The carols are sung by children and the youth. And the carolers go from home to home. They bring joy and good news to the families. And then the Ukrainians, they take such pride in the visual and culinary arts, you know, the the um, visual in the sense that they build a star and they carry the, the carolers, carry the star from home to home, bringing joy and good wishes for the people who live in those houses. And then the culinary arts, people take such pride in making sure that they begin our meal with kucha and it's the very best of the seeds, the grains of, of wheat and the poppy seed and the borscht with all those tiny wild mushroom dumplings that we call vushke. The bread is beautifully, beautifully braided, and it's a kolach. Then we have the savory and sweet dumplings in the varenike. And, of course, we go on to holopsi, the cabbage rolls, which are just rolled so beautifully that they look like little sticks in your in your pan, and they Tastes so delicious. I, I have, I'm curious to know, Anastasia. Like, do you go? Do you do anything on December 25th, and then also do your Orthodox Christmas? Because that's a whole lot of eating to get in over oh, a two or three is. week period. And you know what? We were really, really fortunate to live in Italy for six years, and from the time that we came back to Canada in 1981, we've carried on the December 24th Italian Christmas tradition in our house, and we have like a pasta feast. Oh, boy. <laughs> and we have our friends and relatives over for that. And then, of course, our special Ukrainian Orthodox um, uh, dinner, which is on the 6th and then again on the 7th all day. So the, the so dinner... There's la- a lot of eating here. No question. Uh, the, the food last night, the, the, those are all have one thing in common. They're all meatless. Is that right? Yes, absolutely. All 12 are meatless. There are no, there's no meat and no dairy product whatsoever in any one of the dishes. You know, the mushrooms, I'm a mushroom forager, so I go picking mushrooms in the forest, and I always save those really special ones that are really small and really delicate, and I save those for Christmas. And um, we also, uh, just some other traditions that happen, we, we um, you know, the, the Ukrainian Christmas Eve table, it's akin to the stable, and it's really the reenactment of the nativity. So we place hay under the table, and, and then we fill the, the hay with silver and gold coins and candy for the children. And then we place this three-layered collage in the center of the table, and we light it with a candle, which represents Christ, and he signifies the light of the world. 
difficult. And, you know, Ukraine is the breadbasket of Europe, so our, um, all our life and festivities center around food and family and friends where we get together, we eat together, we show gratitude in our lives, and we share joy, and we honor family and friends, and we always set that extra plate for those people who are no longer with us. Why is there no meat and no dairy? You know, I don't think I could even tell you that. I think it's just because it's just a, a reminder of the humble place of Christ's birth. And it's um, uh, what we always do is bring out our best embroidered tablecloth and we just um, honor the animals and we don't eat any of their products that, that night. And why is Orthodox Christmas now as opposed to on December 25th? Well... In the Julian calendar, which is the calendar that we do follow, it was um, used in the Roman Empire at the time of Christ, at the birth of Christ. But then in in 1582, the Gregorian calendar was created. And every year, it was just a few minutes late, which eventually amounted to 13 days. Hence the difference in the calendar, which is the one that we follow, which is the original and the Julian calendar. So this, um, so what happens then is 13 days different, and we actually celebrate um, 13 days. So we start with the Nativity on January 6th and 7th, and then the second important date is New Year's Eve on January 13th, and during the day on the 14th, and then Epiphany, which is the eve of the January 18th, and then of course the whole day of January 19th. So it's a 13 year, a 13 day difference, and it's also a 13 day celebration. It's a long three weeks. Anastasia. If she started with it the past uh, Christmas Eve, uh, December 24th, going to Ukrainian years, my goodness. Yes. <laughs> well, we do take a break after <laughs> Boxing Day, and then we start, um, uh, we don't really eat as much during that time, but we certainly do a lot of preparation because every day or every second day we try to do something because it's a lot of work to prepare all those amazing dishes, especially when you are doing them yourself and not purchasing them from, from some of the stores, which or I should say restaurants, which is something that people have to do because they work and didn't have the luxury. I'm a teacher, so I did have some time off, so I did spend a lot of time in the kitchen, and I was just so grateful for that time. It's not just Ukrainians celebrating today. Who else is celebrating Orthodox Christmas? Um, well, it's, you know, everyone who is Orthodox celebrates um, today, as well as a number of the Ukrainian Catholic churches who also follow the, um, the Julian calendar. So there, there are quite a few of us that do this. All right. Well, Anastasia Ureniak, thank you so much for joining us today. And uh, I am very glad I ate that banana because uh, mm-hmm. you painted a very delicious picture that would have yes, left my but stomach. I, I, would, I invite you to our house for um, Christmas Eve. Anytime I would love you to to be part of our celebration. So call us up next year and you're, you'll be by the table. Oh, and she so means sweet. it. Last night I got a too late email from her saying, you're welcome to come to supper. And I was like, what? It's, I can't get there. <laughs> like I'm thinking, can I bring my kids? Can I pack everybody in the car? Can I get there quickly? I've gone home with a care package oh, too. So next time I'm in. Thank you, Anastasia. Okay. Anastasia, I just want to make so sure much. there's no okay, vodka. Enjoy your banana. There's no vodka involved, right, Anastasia? Absolutely not. Yeah, of course. <laughs> just wanted to make sure. Not on Christmas Eve, anyway. <laughs> <laughs> all right, Anastasia, you're running. Thank you so much for joining us, and again, greetings to all celebrating Orthodox Christmas today. Of course, you can follow. 
the NHL Jets at NHL Jets on the social medias, and we have a member of the Winnipeg Jets uh, umbrella organization in studio with us, Craig. You are correct, sir. Susie Friesen is Director of Educational Programs for the True North Youth Foundation. She is here to talk to us about Hockey Talks. I learned how to deal with our emotions when we feel stressed out or mad or sad and how to help others with their emotions. It's very helpful, I think, because of how interactive it is. It helps, I think, a lot more kids than just writing in their notebooks. And I've learned that it's not only okay to be physically fit, but mentally, because if you want to be healthy, you need to know about yourself. You know that how to take care of yourself and how to deal with problems. It introduces new things to people that they can branch out to to express themselves, like there's hip-hop dancing, yoga, like even like eating food is like another way to express yourself. I don't think of just Project 11, I think of it as mental health altogether. As it's, when Project 11 is what, is what just starts the ball rolling. I love teaching Project 11. I love the idea of being able to talk about these special topics with my class and being able to see them on a different personal level. Just a sample of some of the effect that Project 11 is having in our community. And uh, Susie, we'll ask you about Hockey Talks and its origins in just a minute. But Project 11 such an important part of the, really it's becoming a, a critical part of the fabric of education in Manitoba. Absolutely. We started Project 11 just implementing in six classrooms back in 2012-2013. Uh, we started piloting in a few roundtable teachers' classrooms, and now it's 2019. I can't believe it already. And we've grown to be in 1,200 classrooms. This year we launched our early years program. We used to just have a, a grades 5 to 8 program in English, and now we're in kindergarten to grade 4 as well in both English and French and uh, with the hopes of translating our middle years program into French as well. What's the early years program? What are you doing in those classrooms now in terms of the conversation you're trying to get started? Mm -hmm. So all of our lessons are focused on the Manitoba health curriculum um, as well as the English curriculum. So we focus on the student learning outcomes that are already laid out for us in the Manitoba curriculum. Um, and so we pull some of those important topics um, out of the curriculum and bring them forward in a fun, dynamic way. So within our video-based lessons, uh, it's really ex accessible and easy to use for teachers to um, press play and watch our mental health lesson, whether it's talking about healthy friendships or healthy coping strategies or what problem-solving looks like, maybe at recess or um, in the classroom. So students are have the opportunity within our lessons to do some self-reflecting. Each of our students have their own, we call it a scorekeeper, which is their own personal journal that just they write in and, and their teacher takes a look at and it's their own private space to just self-reflect and, and have that time to have some self-awareness. Seventh, seventh annual Hockey Talks Day coming up January 31st when uh, the Jets host the Columbus Blue Jackets. So Hockey Talks, uh, we've been, I know we've been talking about Project 11, but what's the, the Hockey Talks sort of general idea? Mm-hmm. So Hockey Talks is a public awareness campaign for our NHL teams and it encourages conversations around mental health for the Winnipeg Jets. This is our, our seventh season that we've been participating 
And what we do here um, is a little bit unique. Every every market does it and celebrates it in a different way. We host different resources and mental health organizations at every home game and throughout the month of January. So we like to host these organizations to really just um, help bring some information forward and and supply some different um, tools or or information for our Jets fans so they can make be aware of what's out there in terms of what's in our community and and get some support if need be. Yeah, obviously a tremendous opportunity for these organizations to be exposed to a large number of people and and be connected to the Jets organization. What are what are some of those groups and organizations that will will get that exposure over the next month or so? Mm-hmm. So we have uh, Art Beat Studio, Kids Help Phones coming out, Manitoba Schizophrenia Society Clinic. Um, Adam, our Anxiety Disorders Association, Mood Disorders, um, OCD Center, etc., are, are some of the the different resources that we'll showcase throughout the month. And then, what's really neat too about our Hockey Talks month is we have our players involved in the month as well. So, as they'll be wearing their drive their Hockey Talks Project Eleven Dry Fit shirts all month, and we'll be selling them January thirty first. And January 31st will also be our big night where we'll celebrate Project 11 and some of our kids and teachers will be out sharing some information and showcasing some of the skills that they've learned throughout the program. And For those not familiar with Project 11, just perhaps to remind some of our listeners about it. It's after Rick Rippon. And, mm-hmm. uh, and tell us about the idea that came out of his death. Right. So Rick was a very, very valuable member of our organization. He had played for the Manitoba Moose and was about to play for the Winnipeg Jets and was battling depression and um, developed a very close friendship with, with our friend Zinger, with Craig Heisinger. And um, after his passing in the summer of 2011, um, we, Mark, Mark Chipman and, and our executive director, Dwayne Green and Zinger and our foundation had a conversation about what we, what we could do in honor, to honor Rick. And Project 11 came about, and what it is, it's a resource tool for teachers to embed in their classroom, and it's a video-based program, so we have 15 weeks worth of mental wellness lessons, and in addition to those mental wellness lessons, we have some fun additional resources, um, almost like body break, if you remember Mm -hmm. Al Johnson, John McLeod. We have yoga videos and um, fun with food videos, art therapy videos that we've called art energy videos, just additional tools for students to reach out to, um, you know, whether they're feeling down one day or anxious, uh, that they can use some of these tools to to help with them, with some of that stress. Now, you're, a, you're an educator by trade, and so you can comment on how much classrooms have changed over you know, the years from the time that, that you and, and then before that I was in the classroom, I marvel at some of the different tools mm-hmm. that are available, even just physically for kids that have a hard time. You know, Brett, you always mentioned that you have to have a fidget spinner or, or different things, even at home, just to kind of keep focused. I marvel mm-hmm. at the lengths to which school classrooms are going to make sure that kids that have difficulty concentrating can have an outlet to to do just that right right a lot a lot has changed since since we were in school for sure um it's been neat piloting with healthy child manitoba we've been able to 
collect feedback from both students and teachers. So we've been able to assess how students feel before piloting the program halfway through and then post-program and just see how it's changed in terms of uh, when comparing to classes that aren't piloting the program. The Project 11 classes, bullying has decreased. Students are able to self-regulate a bit better. Um, how there's just been such an awareness around if a student's nervous to speak at a school assembly that they are out in the hall meditating. I know I had a group of boys in my classroom and we practiced a mindful moment, just five minutes of breathing every day after lunch hour. And I remember, um, you know, different things would come up in the school year, whether it was the talent show or, or presenting at Earth Day assembly or a big hockey game or soccer game coming up that students would remember those breathing exercises and and be self-aware, like, oh, I think I need a minute, and I'm just going to be back. I'll be by my locker, and then I'll be ready. Um, so it's been really neat uh, to hear about what how it's affected so many students and parents as well. I know I have a lot of parents reflecting back at how school is so different. Mm. <laughs> um, I was just thinking the kids could be teaching us some of those things, right, mm-hmm. in terms of if they come home with a tool. My kids have even used phrases where I'm like, right. man, I'm so happy you know that. Like, I just learned that three years ago right. about t- counting to 10 or taking those mindful moments, Absolutely. right? And so they're ahead, hopefully. We, ha- we had a mom, she had one daughter that was in Project 11 from grades 5 to 8 and then her son was starting it in grade 4 and had just shared how it's changed their home life from you know being a busy mom working two jobs and supper time together didn't uh, you know wasn't a time where they could really unpack the day or talk about things so um, after hearing what her daughter was learning and then hearing what her little guy was doing in school as well and having, you know, almost two against one, mom, we should practice this or we need to be mindful at the table. How was your day, mom? Um, and, and teaching mom some of the tools that they, that they learned in school or whether it was practicing one of our yoga videos or our fitness videos. We have Sarah Lesky featured in our fun with fitness videos, just some easy things that will help diffuse some of stressful situations or help kids just take a step back in what we live in now is such a busy, busy world. Well, we uh, we do got to go here. Uh, if you want to go to, if you want to learn more, you can go to the Winnipeg Jets website or just Google Winnipeg Jets Hockey Talks and you'll find it. But uh, the next Hockey Talks booth will be tomorrow night, uh, Artbeat Studio. Uh, that's uh, section, is that section 118, 119? Am I getting that correctly yep. at Bell NPS Place? And there will be talks uh, throughout the month or booths throughout the month at the arena where you can weigh in. And a whole bunch of uh, participating teams in the NHL uh, taking part in hockey talks. So good for the Winnipeg Jets for taking part and the True North Youth Foundation. And Susie Friesen, thank you so much for visiting us today. Thank we appreciate it. Thank you so much it. for having me. Hey, thanks for listening to The Start Podcast. We are available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Subscribe now and never miss an episode. And if you like what you hear, rate the show, tell us what you think, and hey, even tell a friend about the podcast. Be sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Greg is at GMACWPG, that's G-M-A-C-K-W-P-G. I am at Brett McGarry, B-R-E-T-T-M-E-G-A-R-R-Y. And Loren on Twitter is at McNab on Global and on Instagram at McNab on CJOB. Talk soon.